Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Strength and Recovery podcast hosted by the Recovery Centers of America Alumni Association. I'm Jay Rodenbush, the Director of Alumni Engagement for RCA, and I'm sitting here today with Alex Muller. Alex works out of our corporate office at King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, and he is um, the Digital Recruitment Marketing Manager. That's a big title. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Yes, it's a lot of syllables. <laughs> Tell us what does a digital recruitment marketing manager do? Um, so basically, it's you can kind of split it into two parts. One part of it is keeping us, keeping RCA in front of as many job seekers as possible. So whether it's director of admissions or a substance abuse counselor or a registered nurse, recovery sports specialist, whatever it is. It's making sure we're on, you know, all the big job platforms and then doing a lot of trial and error and testing to see like what other digital tactics will work. So we're on, you know, Indeed, LinkedIn, all the big ones, the recruiter, but then also running campaigns on Facebook, Instagram, um, LinkedIn sponsor campaigns. I do a lot of Google ads campaigns for certain positions. Um, we're starting to get on TikTok a little bit. So it's really just trying to get our open positions out there and top of mind for job seekers. And then the other side of it is our employer branding. So a big part of it is trying to tell a story of RCA um, and really just like bringing it down to its simplest terms, why you would want to work here. Um, so my background before I came here was in marketing. Uh, obviously um it was like traditional advertising so like tv radio print out of home that kind of stuff and then it's gradually got more to the digital side of things as we got through the you know 2000 teens whatever that decade's called and then um i had a pretty intense struggle with active addiction which derailed my career a little bit um, and once I got sober, I really wanted to try to kind of marry my experience in marketing professionally with my experience in um, recovery and with addiction and um, getting sober. And this seemed to be a really good place to do that. And awesome. I applied and thank God it worked out. And two years later still here still here and recently thrown into the management position you help our team with the facebook live events and talking about recovery online so what is it like working at a place like rca as far as being in addiction and working in treatment um it's awesome like even when i was at, like the ad agencies it's like a cool, fun culture. I mean, it's probably had a big, it was probably a big contributing factor to my um, addiction and my use because it's like a big drinking culture and drug culture in the some ad agencies. Um, but even then, like working with cool, like big national brands, little mom and pop brands, kind of like the fun that you kind of see people having working at ad agencies, there was no like real purpose tied to it. Like I didn't feel like I was helping anything or like contributing to anything um but working somewhere where there's like a like a motor behind you the whole time just like you know everything you're doing is helping someone in some way especially something i went through myself 
um, is really, I didn't know how, I didn't, I didn't even know how important it would be even when I was trying to find something in the treatment space that like married my marketing and <laughs> addiction experience. Um, I liked the idea of it and how it sounded and like the story of it, but I didn't realize how important to me it would become. So, I mean, working for, um, you know, any addiction treatment provider, but specifically RCA has been. I love that RCA is a second chance company. We hire people who we know have been in the same places that our patients are in currently. They've sat in their chair, so to speak. They've been in their shoes. And it builds another level of passion with working with people in this field. They're truly compassionate and, and have a gift for this work. <laughs> it's funny you brought that up because that's actually um, a big initiative I worked on as you know, being in the recruitment marketing side of things. Um, I was kind of trying to think of like a new project to work on. And I was thinking about my own experience and how tough it was to get back into the, to get started working again and get back into, you know, <laughs> employment. Um, and I just thought like, it's like, whether it's like resume gaps, like you're in active addiction and you, you know, you don't even being employed or working isn't even. It's not even a consideration when you're an active. Like you don't care. You just want to get money somehow to get more drugs or booze or whatever it is. Um, so there's so many obstacles being someone in recovery, having like the kind of past you have. If you have like a record, criminal record or anything like that, um, it's a whole different experience trying to find a job when you're um, in recovery. And I knew that was like a big pain point for people that are in recovery trying to get jobs. And I wanted to make a program we call the recovery friendly workplace that's awesome and so true i was on a meeting today with the alumni coordinators and we were talking about our team and it comes up often that this just isn't a career for the people on our team it's a calling and it's what gives us purpose and drives our work every single day it's really an, an exciting place to be yeah it's something you can really put your heart and soul into it's it's it's, it's pretty cool do you mind taking us to where life met addiction for you? Ooh, early. <laughs> um, the first signs of it that I noticed, it's not necessarily like addictive behavior, but it's the first signs of addiction in my life that I noticed, peripheral around me in my life. Um, so my mom was a alcoholic addict. Um, she, like I just I had something something was was with me where I didn't know like I didn't I couldn't understand it I was like seven or eight I had no idea what addiction was I didn't know what booze was I didn't know what drugs were but there was something like innate in me that knew something was wrong with her or something was up with her so like she would go to like the grocery store or she could go into work or she could go to like my grandma's house we always lived close with my other family and I would have like this intense fear that she wouldn't come back or something was going to happen to her in my mind at that time for no reason. I mean, looking back on it, I know it's because she was a struggling alcoholic addict. Um, and it was obvious that I would worry now looking back on it. But back then I, I would just freak out even if she was gone for like 20 minutes. Um, 
and, you know, going through therapy and treatment and stuff, looking, digging back into the events of my childhood, I, that was the first sign of like something being off, mm-hmm. not just with me, just like with my family in general. Um, but in 2003, I was 15. Um, my family was out to dinner. My brother got his driver's license like that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and before this, like anytime we would go out to dinner as a family, we didn't have the option of leaving early because we, <laughs> we didn't have cars or licenses. We would stay throughout the dinner, through the check, all that stuff. But for whatever reason, this night, my brother happened to get his license and we left dinner early. Um, and building up to this, there was different incidents with our family where you kind of tell that my mom's use was getting worse and worse. And she was in treatment a couple of times. It started with like, if she didn't, she was like the classic knee injury prescribed opiates for knee pain. And then it just spun out of control. Um, so it was building up to this. And then one night, 2003, we're out to dinner. And like I said, my brother happened to get his license that day. We happened to leave dinner early for the first time ever that night. Um, and about, I don't know, it's blurry now, but maybe like a half hour, hour later, we got a call from my dad um, that she had died there, like mm-hmm. at the dinner table. And, you know, divine intervention, act of God, whatever you want to call it, for whatever reason, my brother and I left and didn't have to witness that, which would have been like a whole another layer of the trauma we were already going to deal with from that. Um, so obviously that's the first instance of it really, really affecting my life. Um, so after that, after she passed, um, that's kind of when I, I, I didn't, again, it's like another thing looking back on through therapy and treatment that I've come to realize, but that's when I started really kind of dipping into drug use. So after that, um, it started with, you know, a lot of pot smoking. I took that up very quickly and kind of. And how old were you at this time? I was a freshman. I was 14, 15, freshman in high school. Um, so I started with pot, you know, I guess like the classic story then got into drinking and some psychedelics, you know, like mushrooms and that kind of stuff. For whatever reason, I was never a big drinker. Like I would almost pride myself on not being a big drinker. Um, even like throughout college, it was always just like the pot and the occasional pills or something like that. Um, but then when it really started, like the addiction, active addiction in my story was about two years after I graduated college. Um, I had a couple of friends that lived in like the Maniunk area in Philadelphia. And we were at a party at his house one night and someone offered me a pill. I would later ask what it was after I did it to find out that it was a Percocet. Um, and I threw my guts up. I felt horrible for a minute. And then after that, it was like that 
moment people talk about when they take like a certain drug and they're like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to feel like. It was that. Um, and I didn't think much about it. I just like was in euphoria for a couple hours and then didn't think about it. And then every time we would go back to his house, I would do it again. And it was like, I don't know, a couple times a month it started. And I started to realize how much I liked it. Um, and then it was once a weekend and then it was both days every weekend. And then it was, all right, I'll sprinkle this in sometimes during the week until maybe like four or five months later, it was every day doing Percocets. I had my own dealer at this point, a couple dealers, um, you know, gets to the point where if you're not doing it, you don't feel sick, starting to withdraw. Um, and then it started to get, it started to hit my wallet and it started to get a little too expensive and I couldn't pay for it. And when I couldn't pay for it, I would get sick and I would find a different way to pay for it. And then that started getting really out of control. And then one day I was working at this digital ad agency down in, um, Northern Liberties in Philadelphia. And a dude I worked with, I mean, I guess he could just tell I did drugs. It was like a game recognized game type of thing. He was like, yeah, and <laughs> like he could just tell. So he invited his house. He lived like right next to our agency. And I went over to his house during like lunch or something. And he had like a, you know, drugs laid out. He was like, try that. And I was like, okay. So I tried it thinking it was just, you know, Percocet or Vicodin or something. And I was like, what was that? It was like, that was heroin. And I was like, oh, okay. Like it didn't even, I guess I was so far into it at that point that it wasn't like that big, like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, you got to think about what you're doing moment. It was like, oh, that was awesome. Like it's the same effect as Percocets. And I know it's way cheaper. And that's the first thought I had. I was like, this feels just as good, but I know it's cheaper. And I asked him where he gets it. And he was like, it's like 10 minutes down the street from here. And I was like, okay, show me where it is. So I start driving and the neighborhood's getting like worse and worse and worse. And like, I see the, the state of the streets we're driving on getting worse and worse, like more dilapidated until we end up at, the now infamous, you know, Kensington Allegheny corner. Um, and he showed me the exact little corner. He got it. And then long story short, which is, this is already long. So a little shorter, um, now knew where to go. I started going there myself. By my, at first I wouldn't go by myself. I would just go with him. And then eventually I either got like the ignorance or the stupidity or the courage worked up, whatever you want to call it, to go down there myself. Um, and before I knew it, I was down there every single day. I had, you know, all my different little corners I would go picked out. I started eventually, like, enjoying going down there. Like, it was like a little video game in my head or something. Like, I didn't realize how much danger I was in. Um, and I started like looking forward to it. It was, it was so 
crazy thinking back on it. But so then to get out of that, my kind of aha moments were one time I was down there and I was arrested in like a sting operation. Um, you know, a cop just walked up to my car. I had everything just laid out. Like I was so, I don't know if this is the right word, like brazen about it. Like I would just have drugs just sitting around my car, like straws, bags, just everywhere. And this cop walks up to my car, sees everything. I get arrested. I'm in jail in Kensington. Um, and I get out. And this is one of like the biggest powerlessness moments that I look back on and realize. It was like, it was beginning of January. There's snowstorm, like feet of snow, like a foot and a half of snow. Blizzard. January 2018. Um, and I get out of jail at like four in the morning. And all they do is like, here's your clothes. Here's your shoelaces back. Here's your jacket. Like, here's your keys. Get out of here. Come back for court in a month. So you would think I would just be like, all right. Because I still had some extra drugs in my car they didn't find. And you would think I'd be like, all right. Like, I'll just get back home. <laughs> Try to like forget about this. But... I was so worried about running out of drugs after this that I went in the snow, walked like maybe 10, 12 blocks back to the exact corner where I just got arrested 12 hours before. Cause I knew they would still like some of the corners in Kensington are open late at night or early in the morning. Um, and I knew these guys would be, someone would be there at four or five in the morning. So I went back to the exact block that I just got arrested to get more drugs. Um, and looking back on that, just like the insanity of that is a real demonstrator to me of how powerless I was. And at any point, are family and friends saying, Alex, what's going on? Because I see you here now at RCA is a brilliant person, really engaged on the team. And I love how your mind works. And I feel like if this was going on today and around you, people would rally and there would be some sort of pushback. Is is that happening at this time or are you staying under the radar? What's going on there? I definitely flew under the radar a little bit. My brother knew what was going on to a certain extent. Okay. I guess I skipped over this. So in 2016, the summer I went to a detox. That's when like it broke, the news broke with my family that something was going on. The summer 2016, I go to a detox. They think I'm sober from that point on. 2017, in the winter, like February, is when I went for my first inpatient treatment um, for a month, 30 days. I relapse, I don't know, the same amount of time it took me to get home, two hours later. Mm -hmm. Um do you know when you're leaving that you'll use when you get out at that time? Yeah. I had what they call a reservation. <laughs> so the whole time I was in treatment, I was like, all right, this is good. I'm getting out of my system. I just want one more night, like one more party night 
by myself. I don't have to go to a bar. I don't have to hang out with friends. I want one more night. I'll get a bunch of drugs and then I'm done. That's uh-huh. how I thought to myself. And that led to a 17 month, 16, 17 monthly relapse when I went back to treatment in June, 2018. Uh-huh. Um, but my family didn't know about that relapse. They thought I had been sober since First, they thought I'd been sober since I went to detox in 2016. Then they thought I'd been sober since um, treatment in 2017. And the amount of exhaustion it and the toll it must take on your body and mind to manage all of those relationships. It's horrible. Keeping up with which lies I told who, what story I told who. Every, with friends and family, like I told them I can't go to this party for this reason i told my dad i was late because of this i told my brother i didn't show up because of this um yeah i mean it got it got bad i got you know my brother and my sister-in-law like my trust with them was hanging on by a thread they i mean they wouldn't let me babysit they wouldn't let me hang out with my nieces alone um, my dad knew of the red flags because of what he went through with my mom. Mm-hmm. So he knew, I guess, what to look for. But I think, I don't know. I don't know if I got like that good at hiding it. Maybe he was in like a little bit of denial. I'm sure there was some of that. I'm sure with my whole family there was. Um, some of my friends knew what was going on. I think, I think everyone thought I was still doing a Percocet here and there. They had no clue I was doing heroin. They had no clue I was down in Kensington every day or every other day. Um, I think I made it look like I had it somewhat under control. Mm-hmm. And it kind of kept people off my back. My brother was like the saving grace. He's the one who kind of, at the end, really called me out and was like, can you walk us through that? What was that like? Yeah. So after I got arrested, I somehow kept that hidden. I kept, I had like 18, I got really lucky. I got like 18 hours of community service. Um, it's already expunged off my record. I got insanely lucky. I kept the community service hidden. Like they didn't, they didn't know I got arrested or anything like that until I told them after treatment as like part of my, um, a step but so one day we were playing like a big golf family we all play golf and we were playing me and my brother um and two of our buddies and in the golf world like if you go out to play 18 holes unless you're like violently sick or like you break your toe and you can't swing if you go in after nine holes like you're either relentlessly made fun of or like something's seriously wrong so i go in for no i didn't i didn't have a reason to go in i had all my drugs on me for some like i would just get this tick in the back of my head that was like you have to get more you're gonna run out you're gonna get sick so i go in after nine holes it's like an eagles sunday i think it was an eagles sunday it was it was on a sunday there's something we'd like family dinner after or something and i wanted to get more drugs before we had family dinner so I leave golf early and like an hour later, I'm down in Kensington. I'm waiting for my 
dealer. That was a common theme, waiting for the dealer. Um, and my brother starts texting me. He's like, where are you? Like, where? The, I, don't, I can't say what he said on the text on this podcast. But in so many words, he's asking me where I am, what's going on. And then I've, I eventually got back home like an hour late for dinner. And I could just see in his eyes, he knew what was going on. And he was like, dad, Alex, like, you got to come into the, I got to show you something. Like he made it, he, he was pretty wily about it. He covered it up pretty well. And then as soon as we got out of the room, he was like, he basically just called me out um, with my dad in there. And I knew it was, I was kind of like relieved. I was kind of waiting it for to come to an end. Cause I couldn't stop by myself. I knew that was a hundred percent true. I tried a ton of times. It never happened. Um, and I wasn't going to get help myself. So I was pretty relieved that he called me out. And that was June 3rd, 2018. That's when I checked in a treatment, but I'd say my sobriety date is June 8th, 2018, because as a very good drug addict, I had a very sneaky way of sneaking some drugs in a treatment. And those lasted me from June 3rd till June 8th. Those, those ran out on June 8th, and that's my surprise. <laughs> and so what's the difference? You've been to treatment. You've upset your family before. What made this one so impactful? I think t- uh, probably two things. One thing was, by this time, again, another example of powerlessness mm-hmm. that I always cite for myself. Um, at this point, prior to going into treatment in June, every single time I would go down to Kensington to get drugs, I was full on falling, crying in my car. Cause at the, at like simultaneously, simultaneously, it was the last thing I wanted to do, but like the first thing on my priority list, mm-hmm. like, cause I knew if I didn't go, I was going to be sick and I would have like the absolute biggest nightmare and scariest thing in the world to me was withdrawing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I would just cry in my car on the way to get drugs. I would, cr- I would even cry after, after I did the drugs I just got. Cause it was the last thing I wanted to be doing. Cause at this point I was just doing it to not feel sick, not even to not feel sick, just to like feel somewhat functional and normal. I would still feel kind of sick but it was somewhat able to function. So that was one of the big differences. I got to that point. Obviously getting arrested, being in jail was a big changing point. Um, And then I think this time I, the first couple of times in treatment, I was doing it because my family wanted me to, or I felt like I just wanted to get them off my back. And this time, you know, I was just thinking like I've wasted, I wasted like six years of my professional life. Like I've fallen so far behind, like seeing friends that were like in director positions now or making a ton of money or get families going on. Um, I just want to do it for myself this time. I wanted to catch up on all like the life I missed. You were ready to live. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I was just sick of how I was living and ready to get out of it. It was just, I had enough. So 
how quickly did things start turning around? You're doing treatment and you go through that process. What does it look like at that point? I did treatment. I did 30 days of treatment. I went through a very well-structured sober living. There's not, I don't, I don't think there's a chance I'd still be sober if I didn't do that. If you were talking to someone today who said, I'm going to detox, but I've got to get back home and get back to my life. How would you try to Im- enforce the importance of going through the full process? I'd be like, I, I pray to God it works out for you, but I'll probably see you in a couple months. That's what I would, without trying to sound rude or not compassionate. That's probably, I mean, that's how I can only go off of my own experience and that's how it would have worked for me. I tried detox, didn't work. I tried just um, 30 days of treatment, didn't work for me. Um, I think if I did 30 days of treatment and then had like a really supportive, like sober community around me, that might've worked. I didn't have that. Um, but going through 30 days of treatment and then straight literally in a van from treatment directly to the sober living house, like nothing in between. Um, and then, I mean, I spent, it was like a really structured sober living community. Mm-hmm. So you were in like, they had like the main house and then they had satellite like apartments and other little houses around it. But you would, it was called, it was like a tier system. So tier one through three, you lived in the house, you did groups, you did individual therapy, you went to meetings, seven, nine meetings a week. Um, you had, you know, treatment work. And then once you got to tier four, you would move out to one of these little apartments or houses they had and they like slowly transitioned you back into real life. Like you would get a job, you would still be tied to the house because you would go back to the house for groups and individual therapy. It was like really, really well-structured. Um, I mean, it saved my life. It got me back into the workforce. Um, I lived out there near the place for about two years. I still lived there when I started at RCA. Um, So having like that structure that slow transition back into life was, you know, monumentally important for me. Um, and allowing the brain to heal, right? Like, like yeah. we need to talk enough about, you know, you're not cured after 30 days, that those processes in the brain take time to heal. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it took probably like 18 months until I felt totally normal again, like completely like lucid, <laughs> like sleep was, I mean, coming off of opiates, sleep was just brutal for four or five months. I mean, I know I counted in treatment. I didn't sleep. I might've like dozed off for a couple minutes here and there, but in the first 17 days, I didn't sleep more than a combined four hours, maybe. It was horrible. So it takes a while for all that to come back. Sleep, your appetite, getting your brain function back. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a slow process. That's 150,000% worth it. The way I thought about it was like, all right, so I'm going to treatment. I'm going through sober living. Like, what is, what is a year, maybe 16, 18 months of like hard working on this compared to the next... 50 years of my life that I'll get back. Yeah. Like it's in the long run, it's such a short little chunk of time to get things back on track and to get your, yeah, I mean, get your life back. 
I can't stress that enough for people going into treatment. It's like, you're, so worried about, I mean, it's easy for me now because I'm on the other side of it, an active addiction. If I heard this, I'd be like, shut up. <laughs> 18 months, that sounds like forever. It sounds forever. 30 days sounds like forever when you're about to go into treatment. But in the long run, six months, a year out of the rest of your life is a speck. It's nothing. And to really allow the brain to heal. I'm not sure we talk enough about how someone isn't cured after a 30-day stay in treatment. Those processes in the brain, the brain itself takes time to heal. So I always like to ask, what's life like now? I mean, it's better than I ever thought it would get. <laughs> yeah, I mean, working here, I have one of the best jobs I could imagine having. I have a job that I can actually, I'm not like, roboting through like i think about things i put thought into it i put my passion into it because it's built around something i'm very passionate about and went through um i moved out to an incredible little community the new hope lambertville area in pennsylvania um when i this is a small okay this is a small humble Brag, you could call it. But when I went into treatment, I was 270 pounds. Um, today I'm like 195, 200 maybe. Wow. And the only reason that is anywhere remotely possible is because I got sober. Um, and I got, I don't know, like inspired to start exercising. All my counselors would tell me to just try exercise. It'll help like you know, replace some endorphins, you get your blood moving, you'll start feeling better. And then I, I mean, it's probably like a, an addiction replacement type deal, but I'm fully addicted to running now. I run every morning. I have like all these little running trails near me in New Hope that I go through. But when I'm running, I notice the river. I notice like there's a crazy sunrise this morning. There's a family of blue jays that lives along the route that I run. So and what's the relationship like with your family and your brother? Oh, it's amazing. Relationships in general are so much better. I have a group of friends that I was alienated from in my active addiction that I've been extremely close friends with since literally preschool, since we were like six, seven, that I talk to every single day. Um, I stopped talking to them for like five years when I was using, and now we're fully back in each other's lives. Um, we have a big family dinner with me and my brother and my nieces and nephew, my sister-in-law at my dad's house almost every Sunday, two, three Sundays out of the month. Um, I live with my incredibly supportive, just amazing girlfriend, Amy, shout out Amy, um, in New Hope. We live together. She's one of my biggest supporters in sobriety. She's loves that I work here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's every single aspect of life is better now. I show up to places when I say I'm gonna. I show up to tea times for golf when I'm gonna. And that seems like a small thing, but it's a huge thing, right? It's probably the biggest thing. Like I'm dependable now. <laughs> um, everything. I'm financially stable. I have my own apartment. I'm in a really good exercise routine. Fantastic girlfriend. Awesome relationship with my family, support group, 
sober friends, meetings, everything. I love it, Alex. And thank you so much for sharing, for being so vulnerable. Your story is absolutely beautiful. I know we work together, but this is my first time hearing the full story. And wow, I really respect you and the incredible work you do. So thanks again for sharing. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I always end with favorite recovery quote. I should have given you advance notice, but I didn't. Um, favorite recovery quote is, I'm a big believer that if you're, if you're not doing something for your recovery every day, you're moving backwards. So one thing I say in the Facebook lives I do um, is, if you don't do something about your addiction, your addiction's going to do something about you. Oh, that's so good. That's really good. That, that would be my favorite. We'll see you next time, listeners. Have a good day. Thank you for joining us today for the Strength and Recovery podcast. Real people, real experiences, real hope. This podcast is presented by the Alumni Association of Recovery Centers of America. If you're interested in learning more, visit rcaalumni.com. Here, you can fill out our web form to make sure you're receiving our daily recovery emails and are notified of special events. The Alumni Association of RCA exists to connect individuals to an active recovery community. It is our goal to work with alumni to help them succeed, belong, and ultimately serve others. We help our alumni succeed by hosting more than 120 recovery support meetings per month with both virtual and in-person offerings of big book studies, speaker meetings, beginners meetings, Monday through Friday daily inspiration meetings, meetings for men and women, and faith-based meetings. Second, we create a welcoming community that provides a sense of belonging with a full calendar of events each month. Speaker series, barbecues, holiday celebrations, bowling, sporting events, theater shows, and much more. Thirdly, we provide an opportunity for our alumni to serve both the recovery community and in our local neighborhoods. We offer speaker commitments, chair commitments, mentoring opportunities in our facilities, volunteering at food banks, recovery, and overdose awareness events. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Recovery Centers of America provides inpatient and outpatient treatment and has locations in Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Indiana, and Illinois. Recovery Centers of America, or RCA, was founded to break down barriers to expert treatment. We answer the phone and admit patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, are in network with major insurance providers, and provide evidence-based treatment in our world-class facilities. If you or someone you know needs help, call 1-800-RECOVERY and know we are here for you.